Welcome back to another edition of the Mintcast by Mint Press News, a news service dedicated to watchdog journalism that holds the powerful to account and goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories the corporate media don't want you to see. Today, Whitney, uh, Whitney Webb and myself are joined by Matt Kennard from the Latin American Bureau in London. Matt was previously a reporter for the Financial Times and has written for The Guardian, New York Times and Mother Jones. He's the co-author of the new book, or the old book, Irregular Army, How the U.S. Military Recruited Neo-Nazis, Gang Members and Criminals to Fight the War on Terror. Just as a disclosure, I was editor of his chapter in my latest book, The Propaganda Model in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent, which is scheduled for release May 14th. Uh, and Matt also broke the news story of the attempt by Alan Dershowitz uh, to attempt to suppress the publication of Norman Finkelstein's book, Beyond Schutzbach. But it is his 2015 work, The Racket, A Rogue Reporter versus the Masters of the Universe, published by Zed, that we are going to be talking about first today. So um, after four years traversing the globe for the Financial Times, Matt saw how the, wor- the world truly worked, how he claims it is controlled by a racket, and that racket, of course, includes the media. Uh, the title is a reference to Major General Smedley Butler's famous War as a Racket for Big Business speech. Uh, welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Matt, I found your book, The Racket, really engrossing when I first picked it up. And I'm clearly not the only one. Um, the endorsements of the cover is like a who's who of journalism. Greg Palace, Bowen Jones, Naomi Klein, Mike Davis, Noam Chomsky. Um, that's pretty impressive. Uh, could you just give us an overview about your book and what you found uh, while working at the FT? Yeah, I guess The Racket is best described as... Um a work which filled in the blanks uh, from what I saw at the Financial Times. So it's using a lot of the reporting I did at the Financial Times, but um, telling the real story, because at the Financial Times, you can only tell one part of the story. Um, And I was there um, for two and a half years, and I had access to all the major power players in the world. I was was in Washington, D.C., so I had access to the political class there. But I also travelled extensively. Uh, and had access to uh, high officials in the World Bank, IMF, other people. So as that was, as I was going along, I kind of had in the back of my mind that I would uh, eventually leave. Uh, so I should use the access I had at that time to get as much information as possible to then um, write a book, uh, which ended up like, as the racket um, after I left. So basically what the book uh, tried to do was try to puncture all the liberal myths that we're uh, inundated with uh, every day through our media about how the world works, which are essentially, which is essentially they're ideological myths. They're myths that are propagated to legitimize a system of exploitation and obfuscate it and make it look like a system which is uh, fair and democratic. So <clears throat> it started, I mean, for me, the case that was, uh, well, there were two cases that really, I think, explained for me how the system works. One was Haiti and one was Bolivia. Uh, Bolivia was interesting because I went there, uh, well, it was three years after Evo Morales was elected president. But what Evo Morales was trying to do in Bolivia was trying to extricate Bolivia from this system that I'm talking about, a system, sort of, system of financial capitalism, which is set up to make the 1% richer. 
And what was really interesting about Bolivia was um, you can, I think in countries when you're trying to, when you're looking at governments and administrations that are trying to extricate themselves from the system, you can learn a lot about the system itself because you learn about the pressure points. Mm-hmm. You learn about how they enforce the system, which you can't really understand until someone s- stands up to it. Uh, mm-hmm. You're seeing something yeah. similar in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn. You're, I think I understand, and I think a lot of people understand the system in the UK a lot better. Now we have a, a prime minister who doesn't, uh, who wouldn't let it run as it has been running for however many centuries. But anyway, in Bolivia, what that opened up for me was mainly uh, it was US agencies I was looking at that were basically trying to stifle uh, what was what, what and still is a liberation government, which was trying so. USAID, um, the CIA, National Endowment for Democracy. There's this whole host of acronyms, which basically uh, is an empire of acronyms. And all these acro- all these <laughs> agents, all these agencies are in Bolivia, um, and have been for a long time saying, "Oh, we're here to help democ- uh, civil society. We're here to help um, democracy, and we're here to help human rights." And all the, all the useful language. And essentially, it's Orwellian to the extent that it's literally the opposite of the truth. That if you look into it, that what actually Evo did uh, by kicking out uh, the DEA and kicking out USAID was actually allow Bolivia to be sovereign and independent for the first time, possibly in its history. Uh, and for that, he was uh, well, in 2008. There was a, there was a, it, it was very close to uh, the, him being overthrown because there was a massive. Um, strike and protest in the east where the rich white elite live uh, and very it, it was touch and go obviously he's in a much more um stable uh position now but it was it was really touch and go and so what i saw there um with these different agencies with whatever was doing really alerted me to the fact that if you uh, as has hugo chavez famously said look i don't want to have a, i don't have a problem with the united states but with, if you want to do what i'm doing it, it makes you a problem with it makes a problem with the United States, and that's the point: is that you can't you can't actually try and create a more civilized, a more democratic, a more human rights um, uh, enhancing uh, country without stepping on the toes of the United States. And actually, that's the other thing that the book focuses on the U.S. because the U.S. is the major counter revolutionary force in the world. Uh, everywhere I went, it was the U.S. as the main government and the main force behind um, all these. Uh, movements which are trying to create a fairer and juster world. Uh, obviously, the US, there's other there's other international multilateral bodies like the World Bank and IMF, but essentially they're all controlled by the US anyway. So the US is the real heart of the empire. Right. Uh, so so, but obviously, working in the Financial Times, you don't get to say what I just said. So <laughs> the article the articles I was sending back, <clears throat> I, th- I mean, I didn't write sort of uh, super propaganda for the empire, but I. I was very aware of what you can and can't say. So I'd pitch stories which were about the investment climate where I would uh, evaluate for investors uh, how risky, I mean, essentially a lot of foreign reporting for the Financial Times is that, is, it, is there reports for investors um, to let them know if it's a risky investment. Uh, so I did a lot of that, but I, I interviewed a lot of people along the way that I didn't, that I didn't never used the interviews for the Financial Times, but I knew that I'd use them subsequently. So what you see in the racket is a, a culmination of all that work uh, and hopefully it explains in a sort of, in a quite ambitious way how the system works and how the, uh, the real, on a, on a really granular level, uh, how, how the agencies, um, and I think there's been a lot of work <laughs> done 
in an academic sense um, about US imperialism. But I, what I wanted to do was kind of do the investigative journalism side of it. So actually really go to the ground and talk to people who are affected by uh, the US empire uh, and really, and also people within the US empire, because I interviewed, ton, as I said, I got access to tons of people. So I got kind of both sides of the story to that extent. Um, and the racket was the result of that. Great. Okay. So the Financial Times um, is known for being one of those papers that often gets, you know, exclusive access to events that are hosted by the global financial elite, you know, like Davos being an example, or the World Economic Forum, its official name, right? So, um, and having peeked into this elite world that's mostly hidden from public view, are there any um, oligarchs or or powerful figures that wield considerable influence in, in this racket that you describe in your book that may not be well known to the public that are sort of hidden from view? Um. I wouldn't say uh, there's any particular individuals I discovered that were exerting uh, control that we don't that we don't know about. I mean, obviously they exist, but it really it was the institutions themselves which I was looking at, and the institutions have all sorts of individuals within them. A lot of them don't aren't even aware of the real goals of their institutions, which is why it was quite funny interviewing them because they all parrot the ideological pieties that they're taught to when they when they enter the institution. Which I kind of I think they really do believe it because. That's how they get up in the morning. But, any, but, but essentially, all these institutions are uh, the embodiment of the empire. They're all set up by a, a rich elite to enhance and promote their interests. Um, it's that, it doesn't get much more complex than that. It's, and I think that when you start looking into individuals, and I mean, that, that there's, there's obviously this anti-Semitism scandal in the, in the UK, which is 99% rubbish, but there are, on the left, some sort of cranky elements that do try and pin uh, capitalism on a couple of individuals or a couple of um, groups, which I, and I think it's not it's not as com- it's not as uh, mysterious as that. There's a there's there's a whole confluence of uh, different organisations and, and people that all have the same interests, which is to gut um, social services. They all they all they all have the same ideology because they all have the same interests. So I wouldn't say it was any particular individual. Mm, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I suppose reading your book, one of your main claims is that like far from being a bastion of freedom, uh, being in the mainstream media is in fact very difficult because it's a tightly controlled place where journalists are pre-selected for their obedience and uh, those that don't fit the system like yourself in terms of political outlook kind of constantly have to fight to even continue to be employed. do you want to expand on that? Can you tell us about your experience working inside newsrooms with like editorial pressures or just groupthink or the ideology of the newsroom or your colleagues? Or Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting because I know you've done a lot of work on the propaganda model uh, yeah. uh, by Chomsky and Herman. And, it's, and I had read that before I entered the Financial Times, but I think they uh, essentially got that right. They got it right. And it's a cultural thing is that by the time you enter a place like the Financial Times or even the Guardian or, or wherever it is, you will have been selected to get there. That it's very rare that people will get through the different obstacles on the way to those kind of institutions without thinking certain things. So I, because I didn't give too much away in the interview, and I really destroyed my reputation enough that they could, they could have found out. But <laughs> I think most people, before they get uh, into somewhere like the Financial Times or the Guardian, they would, they, they would already, obviously, when you're inside and you start trying to say those, those things or you think things that are outside of the, the group think of the institution, it becomes difficult for you. And it's quite insidious because as 
as Chomsky and Herman say, it's just that it's a form of mind control, which is, it's not obvious. There's, it, there's, there's certain sort of, I'd say, ticks that journalism, journalists have. So you will, if, if, some, if, a, if, a, if, some, if a negative force is backed by Iran, you will say Iran backed. But if a negative force is backed by the US, you won't say US backed. And no one's told you to say that. But if you're in, a, in that environment the whole time and the paper you're reading every day and everyone around you, is it has those verbal ticks, you just end up repeating them without thinking. And then it becomes a real jolt if you suddenly talk about Egypt, the dictator there, and start putting US back before it. You just, it's, it's weird, you wouldn't do it. You don't think it. So I, I did think it, and I did write those sort of things. So I kind of did test it in that extent. And for example, with Mubarak, I was there in the Arab Spring, and I would often write US-backed uh, Egyptian dictator, and they would, it would actually get excised by the editor. They'd take it out, and then wow. say it was wasn't relevant. wasn't It wasn't relevant to the relevant. the story. Yeah. So I mean, but that's the funny thing that it's like with that Rosa Luxemburg uh, uh, phrase: those who those who aren't moving don't notice their chains. Right. So yeah. corporate media, the journalists do think they're free because no one's telling them what they can't write. But that's because they never write anything that their editors don't want to. Uh, their editors need to edit in an ideological sense because they're not testing the edges of of the corporate media at all. So my time there really made me understand that essentially the propaganda model is correct. Um, there's a very tight ideological um, uh, system in place in the corporate media that does really not buck any um, uh, dissent, really. I mean, I, was it, Alan, did, was it your article in uh, FAIR recently about how there wasn't one commentator in the whole of the US that wasn't backing the military coup? In- no, that wasn't me. That was uh, Teddy Ostro. But it's a really amazing. It was. Uh, it was a great article. Information. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you have that kind of conformity in a country of three hundred million people, it's <laughs> insane. That's insane, and that is that is in in inverted commas a free a free media system. So no one and no one's ha- the, the irony. It's not. It's not a, a a totalitarian system where the media's journalists are being told what to think. It's just that that's how people implicitly understand that that's how you get to be a journalist uh, in the United States and it's the same in the UK. And in fact, I have to say it wasn't just the financial times that taught me this. It was also going to Columbia journalism school in New York, which is kind of like the elite journalism school in the States. Mm-hmm. And also just the, a breeding ground for the next generation of corporate media journalists. Um, and it was the same thing. Every, it was complete. I went to Leeds university in England, which is not a, a it's not a highly respected university at all and I found much more interesting intellectual debate and much more diversity of opinion there than I did it it just got more and more narrow the higher I went up in the sort of ideological um, Mm -hmm. chain so yeah and that's how it works they it selects and it's not that it's a it's quite a hard thing to analyze because there's nothing there's no it's not it's not a totalitarian system so you can't analyze uh anyone telling people how to how to write or how to think but it, it it's a system that works by just incentivizing certain ideological positions uh and you end up with a media where you have not one journalist who opposes what is an outrageous coup against the democratic government in venezuela sure yeah i mean well- yeah, I mean, I find that um, I find that kind of the same in university as well. I mean, I'm from a relatively modest background, and I went to quite an elite university, Edinburgh, and uh, I, rem- I was kind of interested in politics, but I always got the sense that it wasn't for me, you know. So I went once to the Politics Society, 
And it was all these like 19, 20 year olds. It was just totally full of those sorts of people who wear tweed jackets with leather patches. And uh, I went to a talk by a Blairite spin doctor and it was supposed to be about assessing Tony Blair's legacy. And very naively, I thought that we would all be talking about like, yeah, let's, you know, take him to The Hague, etc. But the, the entire hour was just spent by him talking about how he'd brilliantly captured the center ground. And then all the questions and answers from these wow. very elite uh, students were just total softballs. They were just, um, they were just talking about, you know, what was Blair's, uh, how, how brilliant Blair was to, you know, like capture the common man, etc. So I, I definitely think it's not just in the media, but it's more just in that uh, yeah. life as well. It's, any institution which has a bearing on um, public opinion, that has to be tightly controlled in an ideological sense, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that's what, and obviously the elite universities show less diversity because the people that end up in the elite uh, in terms of the media and university settings often come out of the elite universities. So they, they focus more on controlling them. I mean, I totally had the same experience as you described there. Like Henry Kissinger came to um, Columbia Journalism School and it was it was nuts. People were just saying to like literally asking what's 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 your favorite color? What's what what what, what do you think of the human rights abuses in China? And 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 people didn't and people wouldn't even. It's not because they're. I mean, I don't think they're particularly. They wouldn't. None of them were particularly brave, but I think none of them actually knew anything about what he'd done because they'd watched CNN and they had been introduced as this sort of elder statesman who was a. Uh, this uh, uh, a genius in terms of international relations and foreign policy uh, thinking, and it was obviously oh, that's rubbish. They don't know anything about Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam, and so or Chile, um, <laughs> or, Chile or I mean the whole Bangladesh. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole list of countries that who were destroyed thanks to him. And right. and in the end, I got uh, I said, "How do you sleep at night, Doctor Kissinger?" <laughs> and he uh, <laughs> he replied. Yeah, and he replied, "What do you, like you know?" In his like comic book villain uh, voice, he <laughs> yeah. said, "What are you talking about?" So I said a couple of things like Chile, and I said all these different things, and he said, oh, "I don't know what you've been reading on the internet." But then the the dean of the school oh, came up behind on the internet, right? Yeah, the dean of the school <laughs> came up behind him and basically stopped me, and put his hand up, and then I left. And but then a, a week after, my professor came up to me and said. Uh, I heard you disgraced yourself last week, and that's wow. that's the kind of that's yeah. what they, because the professors there were the same. They all went through the same university system. They all understand implicitly what you have to believe or the people you have to revere to keep your elite positions. It's quite it's quite standard stuff. So uh, the the Financial Times kind of um, really made that clear in my mind. But the, the process of understanding how this elite ideological system works started at Columbia University. Uh, definitely didn't start at Leeds, where it was much more vibrant debate, and um, I actually learned a lot more about politics there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, well, speaking about Kissinger and how you know, uh, you know, the, the, it, Columbia didn't really uh, hold him to account for any of his past crimes. There's sort of this sense in um, in corporate media that, like, for example, um, we saw this a lot with like RussiaGate reporting in the U.S. How there were a lot of stories, some of which were like just fabricated completely, and there was no accountability for that. Uh, do you think the same sort of groupthink? sort of rewards, um, even really poor reporting, uh, even uh, if it's in service to U.S. empire um, and doesn't really hold people accountable? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the whole part of the system is also is it, these institutions confer intellectual respect. So if you say you're a Financial Times journalist, 
or you say you work for the Times or the Guardian, then you have this instant, you're seen as legitimate. Whereas mm. people like us who work for Mint Press News, or we're not seen as legitimate. We're, and, that's, and, and, they want, they, they, and that's part of the whole system as well. That pushes people away from saying anything out of the ordinary because you'll be seen as fringe, you'll be seen as a crank. I mean, you know all the terms that they'll call yeah. people. Who <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but that does, that's not related to reality. That's related to controlling the ideological environment. So what mm-hmm. that means is you could you can these these people who are, com, are seen as legitimate uh, journalists and really intelligent come out of absolutely batshit crazy ideas like the RussiaGate <laughs> stuff is uh, is similar. But also if you see any war starting, they they parrot all the propaganda which is conspiracy mm-hmm. nonsense. That it's no different from real real cranky stuff. That's that they're like dub, weapons of mass destruction. Same thing. Mm-hmm. So. I think that the mainstream media is full of cranks and full of people who have no bearing on reality, but yeah. because the way the system's set up, they're conferred with this respect. And it does come crashing down every now and then. And I think Russiagate is an example of that. I think Matt Taibbi uh, wrote an article saying Russiagate is QAnon for journalists. I think it's really <laughs> accurate. You know? It's like, it's just, it, there's no difference. It's just that one is like some little cell in a cell of internet um, nutters and one is uh our mainstream media yeah well talking about the mainstream media and and current events i mean you dedicated your book to chelsea manning who's been in the news quite a lot somebody who's done almost more than anyone to expose how the game works um she's just been sent back to prison for her refusal to testify against wikileaks co-founder julian assange and of course assange himself just made world headlines after British police entered the Ecuadorian embassy, uh, arrested him. And as we record now, he's in Belmarsh prison and there's widespread speculation that he'll be extradited to the US. I know you've got a lot to say about Manning and Assange. Uh, what, what, what do you think about their predicament? Well, it's a disgrace, uh, firstly, that um, either of them are in prison. But it's not surprising uh, because they really did, as you mentioned, uh, reveal how the world works in a way that had never been done before uh and the u.s and any other country uh that gets their inner workings revealed in that kind of way want to send a message that uh you can't do this uh Mm. so and in the case of assange what happens with his with him is massively important for any journalist that wants to practice and do real journalism in, in the next however many years because he even the case that's uh, that's been brought against him that's for literally protecting his source which happens all the time and conferring with his source about what information to get and as a journalist you know that when you're talking with sources i mean there's two parts to it one is during the whole of the obama administration there was always talk about how they would get assange because he was protected under the first amendment and that there was often talk that they that the conversations he was having with manning would be the mechanism through which they could get him but even the Obama administration apparently decided that, that, that it wasn't strong enough to, to bring a case. But the Trump administration have brought this case now and, and said that the, the conversations with, with Manning and the attempts to hack a password, which were unsuccessful, or apparently unsuccessful, formed the basis. For me, I mean, if, that, if that's it's set down as a precedent, it endangers every investigative journalist practicing uh, and using sources uh, within the state or within any other institution um, because well, yes, apart that that you have to be slightly tech savvy to do what they were doing, but there's all sorts of conversations that go go on between sources 
and journalists all the time about what information, firstly, that journalists want, secondly, what sources have, and thirdly, about what sources could have if they went into certain areas. So, and the problem we have is that journalists, we don't have a, we have, the mainstream media, we don't have journalists that actually practice journalism, so they don't see the threat. There's, so for them, they would happily toss Assange to the dogs because it, won't, it probably won't impact on them because none of them do anything that the state doesn't want anyway. What mm-hmm. the, really, the really worrying thing is that this will set a precedent that anyone who's doing things that powerful forces don't want you to do, uh, they'll then have a precedent with which they can bring the journalist um, uh, to book as well as the source because obviously the source has always been the one at risk in, in this kind of process. And what happened to Manning was awful, but much more expected and much more in keeping in line with what um, America and uh, other powers have done when, when their information has been leaked. But the Assange case is really, really important because the other thing they're trying to do is say, well, Assange isn't a journalist. That's, the, that's what the way they're going to get around it. And, and that's been parroted yeah. by places like The Economist and, and other places as well, that he's a hacker, he's... But in fact, he's the definition of a journalist. He's revealed lots and lots of information that powerful forces don't want revealed in public interest. And it, they've tried to say he's an agent of Russia and all these other uh, all these other things. But essentially, none of that's been proved. And the only thing that is on record is that he he is, he's he's revealed all this information. So I th- personally, it's a worry for any journalist practicing. Uh, what happens. I don't know what will happen with the case because I would have thought in theory that Assange would have a good chance of not being extradited to the US after the Laurie Love case. But then again, it's so highly politicized this case already. And in his first appearance in court, the judge called him a narcissist, uh, which was completely out of uh, out of line and out of any kind of uh, uh, legal etiquette for, for that kind of thing. And then uh, I think the next one uh, the judge got the, said he'd been charged in Sweden on these rape allegations, which was untrue. So the next judge had got, actually got a fact wrong. So the idea that he's going to get a fair trial in the UK, I think, is kind of becoming more and more in, unlikely. So, um, yeah, we'll have to see. Hopefully, I mean, public opinion is very important in this uh, case because... And, and powerful forces are aware of this, which is why so much misinformation and disinformation is put out there. And they try and take the... Th- they try and endlessly try and move the issue away from press freedom um, and First Amendment and all the other principles we should be interested in and try and push it towards the Sweden case or try and push it towards the fact he's a hacker and he's not a journalist. All these, there's all these different mechanisms that the powerful forces are trying to use to obfuscate and obscure the fact that actually, in essence, there's a, a journalist that's gonna, that is currently in prison that is potentially going to be extradited to the US and maybe put in prison for the rest of his life purely for revealing secrets of the of the u.s national security state in the public interest so um something i want to bring up really quick you were talking about how the u.s indictment that we know of at least anyway uh would have really um you know troubling precedent uh would set a really troubling precedent for journalism in general um but a lot of people have also brought up the fact that it's really likely that assange once if he is extradited would then be uh sort of subjected to further indictments, for example, the, the Mueller report, when that was really sort of suggested that there was like an espionage act uh, case uh, in, in the works against Assange. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say about uh, the, 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 uh, the potential, um, uh, you know, uh, predicament for journalism that those uh, uh, 
other indictments could potentially cause? Yeah, I think first thing to say is I think that's very high, that's highly likely. There's also this other um, document which came out recently, uh, which was um, a request from the FBI to interview Daniel Domscheit-Berg, who's the German, who was the co-founder of WikiLeaks, I think, but eventually fell out with Assange, but was around when he mm. was uh, talking to Manning. And that, in that request for um, an interview, they the same thing, they hinted heavily that there was another case uh, which involved the Espionage Act. And the Espionage Act um, is an antiquated, uh, really draconian act. Yeah. Which should it's not, almost which 100 years old, I think. Exactly. So. <laughs> and used against uh, people that have nothing to do with espionage. And lots of whistleblowers under Obama, as you know, uh, right. more, more, whistle, more whistleblowers than every single administration previous to him were prosecuted mm-hmm. under the Espionage Act. Yeah, if it's used against a journalist, that will set an awful precedent. Uh, and I imagine it will be because the idea that they'll get Assange to the US and put him in prison for five years or less just doesn't, it doesn't, it just no. seems ridiculously. <laughs> once, they, once they've got him, they're going to do, they're going to throw the book at him and they want to send the message because there's always going to be leakers and leakers know what their risks are. Leakers, they, there's, there's long, long history of, um, uh, leakers being put in prison or nearly being put in prison. Ellsberg was another case. He actually got off, obviously. But there has never been, apart from Assange, a journalist put in prison uh, for for writing about uh, s- secrets that they've got through sources. And that is, in the information age, that is a real, like, chink in the armour of the national security state that journalists can do this. So they really, really want to criminalise investigative journalism when it comes to national security because it's a massive threat to them. And in fact, the the UK government itself, uh, try, well, they were recommended to pass a law. It hasn't happened yet, which would criminalise the possession of classified information if you haven't been, um, if you haven't got the status um, to, to, to possess it, uh, which would obviously uh, criminalise journalists. And I think this is the next move we're going to see is leakers, or, leakers themselves are already criminalised. The journalists who received that information, they're going to try and criminalise them too. And I think Assange could be the canary in the coal mine when it comes to that so they and and also the other thing with with the science they can hit him with all this stuff because he's so hated on the whole that the people that should defend him on principle won't do it so we'll, we'll see what happens so uh, as you mentioned, the mainstream media has been, uh, you know, overwhelmingly supportive of the arrest, I mean, uh, of Assange's arrest. So we had, you know, the Washington Post calling it long overdue, um, you know, comedy shows in, in the U.S., like Saturday Night, uh, Saturday Night Live, The Daily Show just mocked him. Uh, they called him like an Internet troll and like yeah. um, and all this stuff and, and were really um, – you know, aimed at dehumanizing a man that's basically in the, for the past year been in and what a lot of people have likened to, to solitary confinement. Um, so um, are you surprised by this reaction at all? And what do you think this says about uh, the mainstream media as a whole? Um, I'm not really surprised. I mean, as you said before, no one in the history of journalism has ever um, exposed the powerful in, a way, in the way that Assange has and WikiLeaks has. So, of course you're going to come under concerted attack from every side. And the media, far from being a check on power, is often an accomplice. So all the propaganda that's been put out by national security officials, um, government officials, has been parroted endlessly by uh, the media. And that goes across the political spectrum as well, because probably the worst demonizers of Assange have been The Guardian, who were previously Mm. uh, his journalistic partners, 
uh, and uh, and they benefited benefited hugely from his uh, from his journalism and his leaks. Um, and they then turned turned on a dime and and became his biggest accusers and and obviously <laughs> even publishing completely fake stories like that story about um, uh, Manafort going to the embassy three times for meetings. So. In this day and age, I'm not surprised that he's been so heavily dehumanized. It is awful to see because he that there's no sympathy on a human level for him. I mean, if you can look at the pictures of him being dragged out of that embassy and not feel some sort of uh, not not find them distressing, then it, there's a problem that you've 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 eaten up all the propaganda about him, which has basically been set up to dehumanize him. That he doesn't have feelings. That he's not he's not he's he's not a legitimate um, target for sympathy. So I think it's awful. I think that it's really problematic because if you're trying to devise a media campaign or a, or a campaign to support him now, it, there's hardly any uh, parts of civil or the mainstream that are actually uh, in support of him as a, a as a publisher. Um, so I, I I I think it's a disgraceful indictment of the mainstream media. I think it's an indictment of journalists, and I think it's an indictment of of all of us that we aren't out on the streets every day because if he is uh, it's been said before but he is the canary in the coal mine if they get assange then they can get all of us right right i mean obviously it's not it's no coincidence that julian assange chose a south american country like ecuador as a means of refuge i mean you've traveled to a lot of these countries like ecuador bolivia venezuela and reported on them for the financial times and other places a lot of these countries in latin america have gone through a profound political change in the last 20 years or so and have openly challenged what you call the rackets. What do you make of these countries? Well, I think it's massively inspiring um, what has happened in Latin America. Um, and obviously at this juncture, we're at a time when a lot of those, a lot of that progress is being rolled back. But um, the, the case of Ecuador providing asylum to Assange is very, uh, is actually a good example of what happened uh, in, the, in what's called the pink tide. It wasn't, I mean, obviously it was a political process and it was, ha- it was left-wing governments, but what it was was an independence movement. That's what people don't understand. It's about, it, politics is obviously involved, but essentially those countries were colonies of the United States. They, or, or at least uh, not neo-colonies, there was a new system, but they, no president, no prime minister would do anything that went against U.S. dictates. And the process under uh, in the process of liberation under Morales and Lula and Correa, they became independent countries. A lot of them for the first time, and Assange being granted um, uh, asylum was was one of the biggest signs of that because you had a journalist who was being persecuted for revealing the secrets of the U.S. and Correa. The Correa administration came under huge amounts of pressure in terms of. Uh, subversion by the CIA, but also threats uh, using multilateral institutions to withdraw loans and to punish them economically. And they withstood it all. And Lenin comes in, uh, who, Lenin Moreno, who succeeded Correa and was actually his deputy and has instantly reintegrated Ecuador into that whole US-based system. Mm. And part of that has been getting those IMF loans. Part of that has been handing Assange over for revealing uh, war crimes and uh, secrets of the US. So I think it's, I think it, I think what it shows is two things. One is that there, the potential for um, another way of doing things is, uh, is possible. 
The other is that you will come under concerted and very and often violent attack by the United States and its local lackeys. And the third thing is, you if you want to have a left wing movement like what happened in the in Latin America, you some ways you need the U.S. to be concerned with another area like the Middle East uh, because mm-hmm. it's very, it's unclear if the pink tide would even have ha- been able to happen if the U.S. hadn't had its whole national security apparatus focused on destroying Iraq uh, and and other countries in the Middle East because they they obviously tried to take Chavez out in 2002 which was unsuccessful but aside from that there wasn't there wasn't the effort you're seeing now in Venezuela there's a real like the Empire Strikes Back time now they've kind of move their sites over to Latin America and the Trump administration has talk about, talked about taking out Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela. So I think um, how, I think it's hard to resist, but I think they can do it. But I, I don't know. I want to sound optimistic, but I'm not really optimistic at the moment just because they, if you look at, if you look at the countries that are still standing up to the United States, they're very, very isolated. Like uh, Venezuela, how can it kind of, it, it's, it's got Colombia on one side, which is a U.S. Um, client state. Brazil now ruled by a fascist, which is a U.S. client state. So it's very, very hard to resist that kind of pressure. And in fact, uh, I don't hold a candle for the governments of China or Russia, but um, the multipolar world we see now is much, much better, I believe, for progressive movements and progressive governments because you have space to work between between the two superpowers or three superpowers. Well, actually, Russia isn't even a superpower. It's presented as a superpower, but essentially it's got a GDP is smaller than South Korea. But China and Russia actually giving support to the Venezuelans has allowed them to hold on as long as they have. And after the collapse of Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, the, the march of neoliberalism was able to happen in a way that it did because there was no other pole that you could organize around. Cuba being another example. If Cuba hadn't had the Soviet Union to organize around, it would have been destroyed. The, the Castro um, government would have been destroyed a long, long time before. So I think it's very hard in a regional sense. It seems like they're, they're picking each government off. But the fact that we have China uh, and Russia uh, uh, who seem to be dedicated to helping Venezuela at this time, it, it may not last like that. That does give me some hope that they'll be able to resist um, the, the subversion that's happening now. Yeah, I mean, it was quite a hopeful time in the 2000s for Latin America. I mean, you talked about giving refuge to Assange, but I, I know Uruguay, for instance, offered to rehome all the Guantanamo Bay survivors and just the sort of unity through, well, strength through unity was their code word with all these leftist governments banding together and trying to form a sort of international coalition based on solidarity. I mean, one thing that's really interesting I found was that uh, by 2011, uh, pretty much every South American country bar Colombia had recognized Palestine as a state, for instance, which just would not have happened. Uh, Rafael Correa, for instance, came, to, came into power in Ecuador and immediately started improving the, the, uh, the general lives of uh, people with incredible social services. But obviously, now we've got um, Lenin Moreno coming on and trying to really unpick it. In fact, your old uh, newspaper, The Financial Times, said that he was unpicking Ecuador's left-wing legacy. Um, What's interesting, though, is that even though Correa is out of power now and Lenin has taken over, um, he's still as uh, vigorous in his support for Assange. So, I mean, I've got a tweet from you. He 
was publicly apologizing to Julian Assange's mother. He said, Christine, I do not know what to tell you. I only ask for forgiveness from me and my people. A traitor and corrupt uh, person like Moreno does not represent us. I promise not to rest until I see him in jail where he deserves to be. I mean, that's just incredible, the sort of uh, uh, power behind that. But now, mm. now, as we're recording, as you said, um, there's been a lot of uh, governments being picked off one by one. And uh, as we're recording, a not too dissimilar event is occurring in Venezuela as we speak, where Washington backs, Washington trained and self-proclaimed president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido, is attempting to overthrow the government of Nicolas Maduro. Is this a case of the empire striking back? And is, this seems to be an example of what you called enforcement in your book. Mm. It's definitely a case of the empire striking back. And I think it's very conscious on the part of the Trump administration that they're refocusing their energies on Latin America, which got out of line uh, during the war on terror years because uh, the focus was on the Middle East. Um, I think Venezuela case is a bit more promising than uh, what was happening during the Cold War because it seems that uh, there was this big debate in Chile in 73 because uh, Allende believed in peaceful road to socialism and he refused to arm the people even in the face of um, what he what the, the forces that were ranged against him. And I know in the, begin, in the lead up to the uh, September 11th coup, there were many, many groups uh, that wanted to be armed by Ende and he refused. And I think that, personally, I believe that's a mistake because uh, the empire uh, only understands one thing and that's force. And you have to, arm, I, I believe you have to arm the people. But in fact, in, uh, in Venezuela, they have got these citizen militias now and they've armed collecti and collectivos, which can defend the revolution uh, and defend democracy and the constitution if they need to. So I think... Uh, I mean, I think it would be an absolute disaster if the U.S. did invade. And, but, it, but I don't think that they would have any kind of easy victory because they would. The, the other thing that's happened with Venezuela is a lot of them are fed endless propaganda and they believe their own propaganda. So I assume uh, they, they thought this was going to be a cakewalk and they could get, they could get uh, Maduro out because if you watch Fox News or CNN or anyone, this is a country that's in... The biggest crisis in this ever there's ever been in there's ever been in the whole world, uh, and yet every time they try and launch Q, it's like a thousand jokers on a highway uh, <laughs> trying to take a base, and nothing <laughs> ever happens. And it's they get all the headlines, but nothing ever happens because because it's bullshit. They have a massive social base of Chavistas, whatever you think of them. They're, they're hugely popular amongst a certain part of the population. So if you invade a country in that kind of context, you'd have millions of people defending. Uh, their, their, their country, their constitution, and you'd have these, it would just be a complete disaster. So I think the Venezuela's case is very interesting. I think it's quite um, telling that he's held on this long, and it probably the longer he holds on, uh, the harder it will be for the US to do anything without intervening militarily, whether they'd even be able to install someone like they did in Iraq uh, of their choosing is is questionable as well but then these as, as maduro said the other day this is the most deranged u.s administration possibly in history so who knows mm. what's going to happen all everything we know is out the window um i always thought when the trump administration came in that they'd he'd have a war but i always thought it would be iran 
I, I completely free. It might incident. be there too. I mean, yeah, that's not that's not rule it out. I know one week is Iran and one week is Venezuela, so you never know. But I just thought Iran North Korea could be back any day now too, because like Bolton's sabotaging that. So I mean, it looks like they're they're <laughs> trying to start wars. Venezuela. I, I was, but just in terms of demonizing, I always thought Iran would be easier to yeah. demonize. But yeah, actually, Maduro's been demonized in exactly the same way as the Iranian government has. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's obviously more democratic Venezuela. They, they're presented in exactly the same way. So the demonization thing hasn't been a problem. But um, I think that Venezuela is the one they always wanted as well, because I talked about Evo Morales and, and Bolivia is an interesting case. I think it's the purest, most inspiring case in Latin America, but they had, didn't have the forces ranged against it that Venezuela has. Uh, they don't have the oil. Exactly. It's a small population. It's landlocked. It has lithium. But uh, essentially, the U.S. doesn't give that much of a shit about Bolivia. It, whereas, of course, mm -hmm. Venezuela's got the largest proven oil reserves in the world. That's the one they've always right. cared about. Sort of subversion has been heavier there. And of course, in reaction to that, the government's had to become coarsened slightly. And there's no doubt about it. And in fact, when I was in Venezuela, I was talking to people about what happened in Venezuela. And apparently, the, the, the 99 to 2002 Chavez period was much more liberal than what happened subsequently, because in 2002, he realized that, no, actually, we can't be very liberal when we have these kind of forces ranged against us because we'll just be picked off and killed or overthrown. So I think there is this thing of, obviously, you want to have a nice, open, democratic society, but when you have uh, the most powerful country in the history of the world with the largest military basically wanting to overthrow you, you have to make some, you have to mm -hmm. make some compromises on that stuff. And obviously that's going to get you all the bad press write-ups. But I think um, Bolivia's managed to kind of escape having to make that really, those really difficult decisions because the, the, the level of subversion hasn't been as large as uh, in Venezuela. Um, I, I think that was really interesting about Bolivia too, is that, you know, for example, we had Bolton come out and he made this troika of tyranny, sort of like this axis of evil for Latin America exclusively. But somehow Bolivia was left off of that list. He included exactly. Cuba, Nicaragua, in Venezuela, but for some reason you just decided not to include Bolivia, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, yeah. In my opinion, you know, um, as you mentioned, Bolivia has, has lithium and minerals, um, a, a mineral wealth that the U.S. may be interested in, but I also think, you know, that, that the so-called lithium triangle on which Bolivia sits, it's also shared to a big extent by Chile and Argentina, so I think, you know, from the perspective of international corporations, they may think they can, you know, get the lithium that way, and I think that may be part of why Bolivia has been ignored. Um, Anyway, so as someone, uh, as yourself, who has had, you know, extensive experience in reporting in Latin America, uh, do you have any thoughts on the humanitarian crisis and the mainstream, uh, or the lack of, the, uh, rather, of mainstream media coverage of the humanitarian crisis in Colombia, which borders Venezuela, um, and has, you know, over the, the years produced significantly more refugees than Venezuela's current economic crisis? Do you have any uh, thoughts about uh, the, the various uh, the various crises that that um, are currently uh, you know showing themselves in Colombia and, and maybe um, your thoughts about why that hasn't received uh, anywhere near the amount of coverage that Venezuela's uh, own crises have received. Yeah, I mean that that it's actually a really good case study the the comparison between uh, Venezuela and Colombia and how it's presented because. <laughs> In Colombia, all the good news is reported and none of the bad news. And in Venezuela, all the bad news is reported and none of the good news. And that's basically just been the case uh, for the whole time that, 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 that since Chavez came into power. 
uh, and I went to Ven I went to I've been to Venezuela, but I went to Colombia recently to look into the case of um, Chiquita and the historical mm. case where they'd been funding uh, paramilitaries to pick off and kill trade unionists and other dissidents. And it, I was shocked by the situation there because even though yeah. I'd like to think that I'm quite uh, resistant to the propaganda that is put out about uh, US um, client states. I, the devil of fear and uh, violence that there is in Colombia is is incredible. I was in Medellin. It's mind-boggling. Yeah. yeah, I was in Medellin, and I was talking to. I was interviewing a woman whose family had all been killed by paramilitaries linked to Chiquita, and she wouldn't even say Uribe's name. She said, "I'm too scared to say his name." And I was like, uh, uh, "Wow, he sounds like Voldemort." Yeah. yeah. Well, well. To, for for our listeners that don't know, I'm uh, I'm assuming you're talking about former Colombian president. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, he uh, is alleged to have been head of the AUC paramilitary group um, before he was president, um, according to former members of that paramilitary group. And they were the ones, this paramilitary group, uh, paramilitary group they were supposed or allegedly, most likely hired by uh, Chiquita. Well, no, actually, the Chiquita case is one of the more interesting ones because they're on re- the Chiquita have actually admitted giving millions of dollars. So the case is actually, right. it's, it's proven uh, it's, it's, it's important because nearly all the other cases, it's been very hard to prove. But there's mm-hmm. actually a court case in um, the US now uh, of different people who were uh, linked to Chiquita and, uh, and oh, right. uh, okay. paramilitary. But anyway, the situa- yeah, so the situation in Colombia is mu- the people are much more fearful, much more scared. Uh, there was much more impunity for uh, corporate um, uh, linked paramilitaries and right wing paramilitaries to kill and uh, carry out all sorts of human rights abuses uh yeah it's, it's not surprising i mean uh, I, it, that's how the that's how the world works. basically you you'll get a good write-up in the western media if you're if you create investment conditions in your country for western capital it's a simple mm-hmm. fact venezuela made things hard for western uh, investors so they get uh, they get monstered in the media colombia while they uh, firstly they they, they'll lend their paramilitaries to the corporations to kill anyone who doesn't like their projects. That's nice. Okay, we, we like that. So uh, secondly, they've got all sorts of resources that, that the Western uh, companies want. So there's, of course, it's going to be the, the sort of... Uh, and, and the other thing is that it's presented now as this tourist attraction. Uh, Med, I was in Medellin, which is meant to be like... It's presented as a new a new urban center or something. And if you walk around Medellin, there's like little pockets, which are very rich. But then we were, we went to areas where basically people like they were down and out shooting up heroin in the streets and all sorts of things. It was, it was so divorced from the, the presentation you're given um, in, in the media. And if you actually look into the people that are being killed in Colombia, literally every week, if you, if you go to certain sources, you'll see that uh, people who are opposed to different uh, projects, uh, are getting killed by paramilitaries right. and and corporate. It's literally every week, and yeah. well, no one knows their names. Go on, sorry. Oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say what's interesting here is that uh, the current president of Colombia, who has only gotten, in my, in my opinion, from what I've seen anyway, positive press in the in the mainstream international media, uh, Ivan Duque. Uh, he was actually he's actually the political protege of Alvaro Uribe, and since he came into power, he's just been. Uh, well, no one knows if he's actually involved, right? But the paramilitaries uh, have been, the right-wing ones anyway, have been a lot more active in going after uh, activists, indigenous activists, and, and 
you know, social leaders, social leaders of social movements and things like that, even even more than it was under uh, Juan Manuel Santos, who was not exactly easy, you know, he was right wing as well. So I think that's pretty significant. Um, yeah. And speaking of sort of this rebranding of Colombia, sort of like as a, as a tourist place, I think it's kind of interesting uh, because, you know, for example, you have the, the Guajira Peninsula. Uh, that's often been sort of described as a tourist attraction because it's sort of linked to uh, one of Colombia's most famous authors, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, right? Um, but actually, I'm talking about these predatory capitalist interests in, in Colombia. Uh, the, the river that feeds that region where uh, Colombia's largest indigenous group lives, the Wayu people, was entirely diverted a few years ago uh, to be given to South America's largest coal mine. Uh, and Sarahan. Yeah, the Sarahan coal mine. Uh, it, it, are you aware of that situation? Would you like to yeah, talk yeah. about it? I think it, it really deserves a lot more awareness than, it, than it's been given. Well, there's a lot of, uh, I've just been working on mining in Latin America and there's a lot of uh, issues obviously in Colombia, but also in the whole region about, because the other thing you see with these governments that, uh, the right wing governments, they don't, they they basically act as conduits for multinationals. So Mm -hmm. they don't, and and everyone I was talking to on the ground was, I was saying, well, have you got any protection from the state? And none of them see the state as an ally. Yeah. I mean, it's not surprising, but it is in, in sort of in political theory, you'd imagine that a state which is set up to represent the people would maybe represent them. But in fact, what they what they are, they're just essentially representatives of, of foreign capital. So in the case of Serahon, there's all sorts of awful murders and environmental damage that has just been completely ignored. Uh, and also the other thing is that Serahon's going to run out soon and they're going to be left with a, just a devastated economy. And there's no laws at all in place that companies have any obligation to a community or an area once they leave so you just leave a wasteland an environmental wasteland and these indigenous people are completely ignored the other element of the Colombia situation is the racism uh, involved it's essentially a a white supremacist sort of regime in uh, in terms of the elite is all uh, concentrated in the white community and that's one of the interesting things about Venezuela that's not talked about and Greg Palace has talked about that it's a bit that's essentially is the racial component if you look at images of the Chavista rallies, they're all very diverse, high levels of uh, high representation of black communities, whereas the Guaido opposition stuff is just all white. And that's typical of Latin America. Uh, and that's another reason why Venezuela has to be disciplined, because they've enfranchised whole sections of society which have just been marginalized and cut out pretty much since the Spanish arrived. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, for 500 years, I mean, the country of Venezuela and frankly, most of Latin America were set up as slave plantations to grow primary crops like uh, coffee or sugar or bananas or or mining or what have you. And it worked how, uh, you know, small numbers of Iberians from Spain and Portugal would come over and slave the indigenous population or also bring over large numbers of Africans. So you had this situation where there's a small white elite at the top and a large black and brown population at the bottom who are their slaves. But even even after independence and the end of formal slavery, the economic system didn't really change. I mean, that's basically how it still works to this day. And so that's why you get the great Uruguayan author Eduardo Galeano saying, like, in Latin America, the black are mostly poor and the poor are mostly black. But we don't really see that because... Our, you know, there's a great stat that most Americans don't have a passport. And, you know, frankly, it's not that much better for Europeans. And uh, that means that most people don't have any 
real actual empirical experience of other countries in the outside world, which means our entire idea of other countries comes mediated through the media, doesn't it? And the media are, who are they? They're just, you know, a, a very small amount of corporations who have their own interests. And there's not even very many reporters doing foreign reporting anymore. So even the entire Latin American continent is probably just a few dozen Western journalists producing pretty much all we see, whether it's CNN or Fox or Washington Post or BBC or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. And uh, essentially, the other uh, it's a, and the, the indigenous communities, especially in Central America, where I've spent some time, it's essentially an apartheid situation. There's not mm-hmm. much different. Me- I lived in Mexico for a year and traveled quite a lot in Chiapas, um, where there's high, uh, the biggest indigenous population. And it's, they essentially live a completely parallel existence to the rest of society. They don't, have, they don't own any, la- any land that's uh, coveted at all. They, ha- they don't use the legal uh, institutions. They're basically at the mercy of the Mexican military. And, and any time me- the Mexican state decides a corporation wants a bit of land, then they get it. Like, they have absolutely no power at all. And it cuts across ideological uh, boundaries as well, because a lot of the, uh, AMLO, who's just uh, come in, uh, just come in as a Mexican president, um, uh, first left-wing president for many, many decades, and he's actually already got quite a lot of stick for not doing much for indigenous communities and it not being an issue at all. And he and originally when he was standing in 2006, uh, the Zapatistas uh, refused to um, uh, or actually called for a, no one to vote. They went on a big march and said no one should vote in the elections. And uh, because they didn't believe that AMLO, who is left wing, but... Uh, he, they thought he, he didn't do he, he didn't have enough policies which were pro-indigenous, and I think that is kind of true. Even the left-wing leaders, there's there's Korea being a good example as well. He did it environmentally and in terms of mm-hmm. the impact on indigenous communities. He did a lot of bad stuff, and this is a kind of yeah. it, uh, a, it, this kind of apartheid, uh, implicit racism in the system, which is as you say goes back 500 years, is so deeply embedded. Uh, it it. it it's reflected across the political spectrum. The one place where obviously where that doesn't happen is Bolivia because they've got their first indigenous president under Evo Morales. Um, But uh, I think people don't realize, as you say, because they get all their information mediated by the media. uh, They don't realize that uh, essentially most, uh, most of Latin America, if you talk about the indigenous communities is an apartheid state. Most from Mexico, Guatemala, all of them, they're apartheid. I mean, Yes, they can vote in elections, but they have no, they don't own anything. All the land's owned by the rich white elite. They're all uh, basically peasant communities. Um, and yeah, it's a massive distortion that we're given in the, in the Western media. Sure. I mean, Whitney, you actually live in South America. Do you have, a, do. Do you have a South American perspective on either uh, Assange or Venezuela? What, what's the feeling there? Where well, are you? Today? Well, well, I, I'm in southern Chile. I'm in, uh, uh, well, I don't exactly want to say exactly which city I live in, but I live in La, La Rocanilla, which is um, uh-huh. near Patagonia, I guess you could say. Um, a point I wanted to bring up, though, is that we were talking about travel, how a lot of people in the West don't have passports, don't come here firsthand. Um, as someone that's, li- I've lived in South America since 2012. Um, at first, I lived in, in Cusco. Um, and then I lived in a, a really rural area uh, near Cusco in Peru. Um, I just want to point out, too, that when Westerners actually take the time to try and come here and learn about the culture and see the sites, 
a lot of times the states set up their, their tourist destinations so that people uh, from foreign countries only see a certain, uh, you know, a certain, um, s- certain scenarios. They only meet certain kinds of people. They sort of sell the indigenous culture, um, you know, sort of as, as a tourist selling point. You know, they don't really show you the struggles that indigenous people go through. So, for example, Cusco, you know, has Machu Picchu. It's what it's it's the biggest tur- uh, tourist destination in South America. But at the same time, you just drive a few hours away. Uh, you go to the neighboring region of Apurimac, and there is where almost all the mines are in Peru. And um, the way they repress indigenous communities there is just insanely brutal and gets no coverage. Um, one of the small towns that I lived nearby, they would just take uh, indigenous people that complained. They would put trash bags over their heads and push them off cliffs. <laughs> in the Andes, just like regular people that, that resisted. Um, indigenous communities would go and light uh, mining barracks on fire um, to try and kick them out, and then they would just, Peru would send in the military. I mean, it, it's just really insane, the kind of stuff that goes on there. Um, it doesn't get any coverage. So even if people go and they try and visit, you know, they don't, those sort of uh, struggles are hidden from them, and that's even true in Chile, uh, too, you know, I live in a really touristic area um, and, you know, there's the indigenous people here, the Mapuche, um, and they are also uh, subjected to what you mentioned, sort of this apartheid system. They live on reservations, not unlike the the North American system, and they're regularly repressed by the police. Um, Actually, uh, Sebastian Piñera, who's the the Chilean president, he made this whole new uh, federal police force to go after the Mapuche that's called Jungle Command uh, because they were trained in the jungles of Colombia. Uh, and they, they go to these, uh, you know, the, the, the Mapuche communities, they go into schools full of kids with tear gas, with tanks, uh, and, they, and, and, and it's insane. But if people come here, like the town where I live, for example, they just go into like the, the indigenous, you know, huts and they eat the traditional food and they see the women in their traditional clothes and that's all they, they let people see, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, I think, you know, even if you do make the point to travel here, uh, there's a responsibility of the state and, and the tourist communities and the tourist tourism sort of culture to sell you a certain narrative too. Um, so it's kind of hard to get, you know, this, this information out. It, uh, it, it, and it needs to get out honestly, because a lot of these, uh, these issues that we're talking about, as you mentioned, have been going on for centuries and, and really need some light shown on them. Yeah. I had, I, I was just in Chile actually and had a very similar experience because I was in the North in San Pedro de Atacama. Ah, right. Uh, yeah. But which is very touristy, but in the middle of yeah, an Indian- and an extremely polluted. Yeah. Exactly. It's in the middle of uh well, it's a, lith- it's in the lithium triangle, but also mm-hmm. copper as huge copper mines. In fact, the biggest in the world, I think Escondida right. is there. But yeah. I, I went to visit a community just outside San Pedro uh, on the edge of the Salada Atacama, which is uh, uh, about 30 miles uh, outside. And this community were basically saying all the wa- their water, which was, comes from the Salad, is being taken by BHP and four lithium yeah. companies, which, which operate there. And they have absolutely no recourse to any sense of any cause, any justice at all, because this, the government is fully behind. In fact, one of the mining companies is owned by Pinochet's grandson. I mean, it's all, all totally yeah. corrupt. They, and when you're arranged, when, as I was saying earlier, on an international uh, stage, it's the same thing. But when you have the power, these kind of powerful forces ranged against you, it's freaking hard to fight because they, they were saying we don't have any money. We can't produce um, studies which contradict the studies they produce because the other thing these mining companies do is obviously they've got uh, endless amounts of money, so they get um, environmental uh, consultants to do environmental impact reports. And they showed me one, and it was literally a hole. It was like 
5,000 pages. And the guy was pointed at and laughing. He was like, do you think we're going to read that? Uh, the guy was uh, the head of the community. So it's like they just plow this uh, uh, paid-for information into the communities. They have no way to fight back against it. And eventually, and usually the corporations get their way. And in fact, the Salah down the road from this community, which I, I went to, had actually completely dried up because all the water had been used mm. for money. Um, well, uh, in, talking about media coverage, you know, in, in the north of Chile, something that's really interesting is that there's been all these positive stories, the international press coming about Chile, having all the solar power, this wind power, renewable energy. Uh, yeah. You know, a big selling point for Chile's government and the international media, but what isn't mentioned almost all of the time is that these are for the mines exclusively. These don't actually help regular people. Um, yeah. So, for example, where I live in the south, they're trying to bring mining here. There hasn't been mining before um, in, in this region anyway, and they've already they're, – they're damming up the rivers. They're trying to install hydroelectric plants, and they're not being used to power any of the towns here. Everyone knows it's for mines that they're going to try and put in the future. And in the north, you know, the wind power and all of that hasn't really helped anyone at all, but they always report in the media that there's this, you know, this surplus of energy, and you know, Chile is going green and leading the way in sustainable development. Um, yeah. But it's actually, yep. you know, making a really extractive and destructive industry more sustainable, right? So it's kind yep. of an interesting. Yeah, Matt, you've actually written quite a lot about that, haven't you, for like The Guardian or about The Guardian and sustainability? Yeah, it's a massive issue because um, it's a ma- part of, major part of modern capitalism is presenting uh, exploitative uh extractive projects but nearly every other type of project as well is somehow somehow socially useful it's like standard procedure now you you pretty much never get a project which doesn't have some sort of uh, element bolted onto it about how great it is for the local community and blah 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 and that is uh when i started looking into this because i covered mining for the financial times for a while and it was quite a conscious thing on the part of the mining industry uh around the 80s because they had such a bad reputation that it was actually very hard for them it was getting harder and harder to actually uh make their projects work around the world they have what they call a social license which essentially describes the attitudes towards them from the local community and they were losing the ability they didn't have they were saying we don't have this social license so then there's this massive push for what for corporate social responsibility csr propaganda so they'd talk about everywhere they went, they decided they'd build a school next door uh, uh, or a hospital, whatever it would be. Uh, and usually what it, uh, I went to a, a diamond mine in Tanzania where, uh, on a story about CSR and they built this school. And yes, they built this school. And uh, this is a, 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 a company called Petra Diamonds. They built this school next door. Uh, which had uh, 30 kids in it, but they'd been running this diamond mine. Or they'd been they'd been running this diamond mine for decades and hadn't paid a pound in tax because they said we've never made a profit. So essentially, they're and this is how the system works. So you just you deprive the state of the money it's rightfully owed, which is probably millions of dollars. But yet you spend like I don't know twenty thousand pounds to build a school, uh, and then. You, you present that as like charity or you're a wonderful organization, but in fact your company itself is integral to the depriving that state of any ability to actually do anything useful itself. So you get states that just rely completely on charity from corporations. And then the corporations also use the argument, Oh, we, we win jobs. Uh, 20, 20 people are employed in this mine from the local community. And then, 
you're meant to believe, oh, okay, well, that's fine. And it's fine that you deprive them of millions of dollars of taxation and all their mineral wealth because you built this cheap school and you give 20, 20 people a job. So it's, it's, very, it's a very well-integrated system. It, it works very well for them. And in fact, it even works well with the communities. As I was saying with Chile, in that case, the communities I interviewed, I would be lying if I said they were all opposed to the mine. A lot of them said, we don't mind the mine because it brings money to us and, and it brings us jobs. But, um, but that's because they can never give an alternative. What they need is an alternative where a state is incentivizing uh, socially useful, environmentally uh, positive industries, which the state can support in the local area. But they're, they're just, it's either nothing or mine or multinational mining. Right. I mean? Well, I think there's a lot of cities in the north of Chile that are just so um, you know used to the mine and they've just developed all their other industries around mining that, I mean, they just don't, they can't really even conceive of. A lot of people there can't even conceive of any sort of alternative, even though, you know, like in, in cities like Antofagasta that are like, you know, really big mining areas, um, you know, their water, their tap water has so much arsenic that can't drink out of it. Some people yeah. can't even feed them their water. They have to bring it, they have to bust it all in. Um, or the air is full of toxic stuff and then they get sick from breathing it, but they're like, no, 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 but we need the money sort of thing. You know, it's just, there's, there's a lot of these hidden costs that even uh, people that live there just are, have, have accustomed themselves to, to living with these sort of conditions and they, they just don't see any other alternative than what they're used to. And of course, Chilean media uh, which is dominated by either, you know, the state TV, TV, TVN, or, you know, CNN, <laughs> uh, they don't really cover these issues either, you know, and actually, I would argue that Chile CNN might actually even be worse than the, the US version. <laughs> wow, that's, that's quite a claim. <laughs> yeah, well, it's at least on the same bar. I don't know. I've, I've seen a lot of um, really bizarre reports where they'll like, um, uh, so I was I was watching one the other day where they were talking about uh, Ortega's government in Nicaragua, and they had some guy on who'd been accused of bias and sort of outed as sort of this journalist was being funded uh, was found to be being funded by people that wanted Ortega ousted and was also taking U.S. money and was linked with some sort of U.S. group. But the guy, the journal, the supposed journalist interviewing him on on CNN before uh without even like mentioning that he was like anyone that wants to accuse this guy of being biased they're wrong and just like went on the spiel uh that i would i i don't think i have even seen that kind of level of of like extreme propaganda even on on, on us cnn it was just like really shocking to me yeah yeah the media in the u even the local media in the in latin america is just freaking awful yeah. it's like it's so bad it's usually like i remember in honduras honduras has two newspapers that are owned by two oligarchs and i've just never read anything as bad mm. as that and that's literally there's no alternative means of getting information which is a major part of the problem yeah that's actually really common from what i understand like in Chile, yeah. for example, there's a newspaper that's owned by the edwards family and of course augustine edwards is well he's dead now but he was like this big oligarch and he's actually one of the guys that went to dc why allende was president and asked for him to be overthrown and replaced with yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, not surprising. Yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, the media inside Venezuela is pretty much the same as well, where it's that uh, controlled by oligarchs and pushing for a coup, and that's what yeah. we're seeing just now. I mean, yes. actually, if the U.S. Uh, does try to push for military intervention in Venezuela, what sort of implications do you see for the country and for Latin America as a whole? It would be an absolute disaster. As I said earlier, that makes me think they won't do it. But then who knows with this administration? Just because I think that they misunderstand or 
they, if they do it, there'll be misunderstanding of the social base that the Chavez, um, Chavista government has. I mean, they've had 20 years of, I mean, obviously a large part of the population don't like them, but a large part massively support them and are, because they're aware that they've been enfranchised in a way they never have been before and they mm-hmm. don't want to see that reversed. Uh, so you'd have a massive you'd have a massive drawn out of, if they if they did it could be an Iraq situation where you they could invade with massive force and topple the the government quickly but then you'd have this you'd have millions of people that were still representing the Chavistas that would that would be, go underground and then fight a, a civil war you'd have and then that would spread out to the whole region um, it would be an absolute disaster I, 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 I don't think they'll do it but as I say who knows I mean what do you guys think well, uh, I personally think, you know, for example, a lot of the concerns, at least within Latin America, are about the, how many refugees there are right now from Venezuela. And I think any sort of military intervention is just going to see that just increase uh, by a significant degree. So, um, so for example, like in Chile's most recent election, it was a big issue how many refugees were coming from Venezuela. And it's also been an issue in Colombia, uh, Colombian politics as well, and several other countries. So, I mean... And that, and that's just because of, you know, the, this largely, what is largely an economic crisis in Venezuela, right? So just imagine if it becomes an armed conflict on top of that. I mean, it's just going to uh, create a huge refugee crisis. And also here in Chile, for example, you're having a lot of refugees because of the, the bans on immigrants in the United States. You're sort of seeing a lot of Latin American countries flooded with uh, uh, people from, from Haiti, uh, for example, here as well. And so I think it would just... Um, at least in that sense, create a, a really big refugee crisis. And we could even see a, sort of an increase in, in these so-called, you know, caravans uh, that are mostly from Honduras right now, but I think we could see some of that blowback in the U.S. But, you know, Trump mm-hmm. ha- has shown himself to really sort of try and take advantage of that for domestic politics about militarizing the border and whatnot. So he may actually want that as sort of a way to pitch himself in 2020, as sick as that sounds. I, I could really see yeah. his administration trying to capitalize on that. Um but, but you know, the very thing is the brinkmanship here with the Trump administration. You have people like yeah. Bolton, and and Trump doesn't like to lose, right? And then you have just total maniacs like Bolton as his national security advisor. So, uh, yeah. Well, I go on. Sorry. Oh, that, that was it. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say that that the history or in, in modern history of the U.S. in South America has been mainly to to get their way through in uh using local proxies and internal subversion and mm-hmm. they've done that pretty successfully so i think that they'll uh, i imagine they thought they could uh they'd have better luck uh in venezuela than they've had so far but i would have thought that's their preference i mean do you, when was the last time the u.s actually militarily invaded a south american country um directly um, well, I'm thinking ago. maybe Grenada and Haiti would be the ones that, that was I'm ca- thinking. Yeah, but that's not that's Caribbean though. Well, that, that's technically the Caribbean. Yeah. Well, um, I in terms of like a direct military invasion, I don't know. Um, honestly, we might be talking about Nicaragua and the in, like well before World War. II. I think I think that's going to be like the, the proxy stuff mainly, but that didn't even involve U.S. I mean, well, none of this really involved U.S. troops, but there there has been like U.S. involvement like in 2009 in Honduras. You know, that was really. Yeah. Uh, obviously orchestrated by the U.S. and was even admitted by the Hillary Clinton-led State Department, right? So I would yeah. I would say that to be, you know, probably the most recent one with direct U.S. involvement. But, but I mean, even sort of those covert diplomatic coups that we saw happen in Brazil, 
um, in Paraguay and, and places like that after 2009. I think uh, there were allegations of U.S. involvement there, but it wasn't as obvious as it was in the 2009 uh, Honduras situation. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if we look back historically, the U.S. tends not to attack countries unless they're pretty much defenseless. Another thing that makes me hopeful for that there won't be an invasion is that uh, I don't know if you saw that there were these Russian pranksters who pretended to be Swiss bankers and called up Elliot Abrams. And uh, it was a pretty funny uh, chat they had. But they said that they had audio of him saying that they are not planning to invade Venezuela and this is just a sort of show of strength. Unfortunately, they haven't released that clip, so I, I can't really be verified about it. But I, I have oh, to let's say hope. That, Yeah, I mean, uh, if, they, if they did try to invade the country, it's unclear who would actually be doing the fighting, because even though there are millions of people who oppose Maduro, I, I, I don't see them actually picking up guns and weapons. The sort of people who are in the streets and actually, you know, attacking police or, you know, fighting with uh, the National Guard. There's actually a very small amount of people doing that. Mm. It's just, you know, a couple of thousand or something. So it's not clear who would actually be fighting the war on the U.S.'s side there, especially because Venezuela has a massive gun problem. There's far, there far more guns in Venezuela than the U.S. And so we might end up with a situation, like you said, Matt, there'd be a sort of huge underground rebel army and it would be mm. completely ungovernable. But they've done that before in the Middle East. That's what scares me is that, that it's kind of the same in Afghanistan with uh, Northern Alliance when they took out the Taliban who, who had massive uh, social base and still do. But they basically just sh- use special forces, sort of small amounts of special forces to win certain missions and basically put the Northern Alliance in, in the presidential palace and then they just spent the next, up till now fighting this guerrilla army who had just had a massive social base. I, I, I don't think you'd, they'd, they'd be stupid enough to do that in Venezuela, but as you say, that would probably be the most likely scenario that they'd just blast in, put Guaido in uh, Miraflores and then just like have this massive guerrilla army just fighting it for however long. Because as you say, they're the ones with, that are armed, but we'll see. Well, that's quite, a, that's quite a worrying note to end on, I think. Uh, is, there well, any, is there any is, hope? No, I was going to say, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Not really. I mean, I mean I, one of the things we haven't mentioned is there's maybe a more hopeful note to um, end on is, is, the, is the democratization of the media, which is quite... I, I, I'm trying to understand how in the, in, in the digital age the media became much more democratized, but the mainstream media, legacy media became much more constricted at the same time. Because I would have thought they would have reacted to the democratization and all the different um, new media that were sprouting up by actually opening themselves up a bit and becoming more ideologically diverse, uh, not being so rigid in establishment. But in fact, it's been the total opposite. If you look at The Guardian from the 80s, it's really radical stuff. And even parts of the 90s, and now it's super, super establishment when it's in the middle of fighting for readers with the most diverse media we've ever had. So it's, uh, it's quite a bizarre thing. But I think eventually the legacy media will lose because, um, because they're so antiquated. And I think that you're seeing loads of interesting different media outlets um, sprouting up all over the world, really. And in, in the UK particularly, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening with local investigative outlets. So, and I think that the meet that war and that dynamic has to 
has to go forward really fast if we're ever going to have a, a a political success. The left is ever going to have political success because so much rides on the media because that's how consciousness is the public consciousness is formed and it's always it's just fed endless amounts of rubbish and i you 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 we, we all read the media critically but yet you sometimes i'll talk to someone who doesn't and i'll just and then i'll just see the how powerful it is so if you talk to i've talked to people recently about jeremy corbyn and then they all adamant he's an anti-Semite. And of course they are, because every time you switch on the news, there's a new story that's about him. Right. Yeah. But obviously I know that's rubbish and I know it's a, it's a psyops to, to destroy a, 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 someone who's a threat to the establishment. But most people don't. Now, we need to get to a situation where we can meet millions and millions of people with the truth and not mediated by establishment corporate talk, talking points. Um, and I think we can get there. And I think that technology has allowed us in a way that we never and ever could before because the intellectual means of production were owned by oligarchs. And of course, the intellectual means of productions or the platforms are now owned by Silicon Valley, which is probably a coming battle in itself. But I think there's much more, there's much more avenues for us to, uh, for dissidents to work and to get our message out. So, and I think we have to, um, and we're, uh, we're actually looking into starting some new media stuff as well. So yeah, I think there's exciting things uh, in the offing. Yeah, I think it's interesting you point that out too. That that uh, you know, as these independent, more independent outlets have sort of come to prominence or have gotten more readership, and um, you know, in, in an online world, right? Um, at, and the legacy media has sort of tilted more towards even more towards the state than than it was before. Yeah. But we're seeing also a sort of the state sort of stepping in. Uh, through their proxy of like these Silicon Valley companies, right? Like social media uh, as in working to censor, um, not just independent media, but also we've seen recently, you know, the accounts of government officials uh, of countries that are being targeted for regime change, like Venezuela uh, recently had several government accounts taken down by Twitter. Um, Several newspapers were taken down by Twitter recently. Um, Instagram took down a bunch of government, uh, uh, Iranian government officials, things like that. Uh, do you have any uh, comments on, on social media censorship and, and maybe solutions uh, that, that you've thought of or other people that you know have thought of for getting around that? I don't have any particular solutions. I think that they, I think it's important uh, that we everyone discusses it now because I think it is the coming, the coming war. Uh, we rely on, as I was saying, with death, the media has been democratized and there's many, many ways to get your voice out now, but they all rely on uh, private corporations that uh, have all the, that have all the problems that come with being a private corporation and increasingly you're seeing the freedom that they did previously allowed becoming more and more constricted. So I think every now and then there's these stories that pop up that Telezora is being banned on Facebook or Twitter, <clears throat> that Google has changed the algorithm to lock out anti-war sites and stuff like that. And I think that will happen more and more and more. Um, I, I guess the only way to combat that is to create new technologies and new platforms that don't have uh, the, the corporate structure. But how easy that is, I don't know. I'm not a techie, but I think that will happen. And the other thing is there is a certain logic to it itself that means that corporations might be inclined to keep it as democratic as possible. Because, uh, for, the exa- for example, WhatsApp, uh, this is a different issue around security, but it's security from the state. Uh, they encrypted their services. Uh, recently, and that, I, that, I don't think that was because they had some sort of philosophical awakening. Uh, I think that was because they basically realised that uh, uh, platforms like uh, Telegram and Signal 
we're going to take a lot of users because actually the interface itself isn't that complex. So you can recreate it with an encrypted service. And they realized that a lot of people would move over to the encrypted service unless they encrypted. So I think the more and more that more and more that will happen, for example, now proton mail, that email account, which is just, you can be stupid and have your email encrypted. Everyone's using proton mail. Now will everyone start using proton mail instead of Gmail? Because I say stupid because I was trying to use encrypted emails before like five years ago and it was freaking hard to do. If you're not <laughs> like a techie, you have to like install all sorts of things and like have a, uh, yeah, it wasn't easy. Whereas now proton mail does it for you. Uh, and, maybe Gmail will see that and be like, well, actually maybe in five, 10 years, everyone's going to be using ProtonMail to try and uh, avoid uh, surveillance by the state. So there might be an incentive for corporations to go, the, uh, to go that way, but who knows? Um, I don't know. That's one for the sort of uh, uh, the techie, techie lefties to sort out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, may, uh, mainstream media is certainly attacking alternative media. And that's why you have to support alternative media. You can support us at <laughs> patreon.com slash mintpressnews. Um, all Patreon subscribers will be, uh, uh, will be able to access extra bonus clips from our uh, interviews. Uh, Matt Kennard, do you have anything else to add? Do you have anywhere to promote? Where can people follow your work? Um, I don't have anything else to say. Do I have anything to promote? Um, no. Your excellent book. <laughs> yeah, your excellent book. I'm not, we're not selling anything. Yeah, yeah buy my book. Buy my book. Not from Amazon. <laughs>